Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 148, Pennies for Heaven and Building Upkeep. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are back for part two of our conversation with Dan Judson about his book and flowing from his book, Pennies for Heaven, A History of American Synagogues and Money. The book is about the history of how synagogues have been funded and supported throughout the history of American Jewish life. We think it's relevant to a wide variety of Jewish institutions, and we think that in exploring how they have been funded, it may open up ideas about how they could be funded or how they ought to be funded going forward. And we actually reflect a lot about ourselves. Here, we're a new kind of Jewish organization, Judaism Unbound is. We have nearly one million downloads, hundreds of thousands of hours of participation, and we really hope that we're able to find a new model of funding. And the model that we're proposing is one in which people contribute voluntarily about a dollar for every episode that they listen to. If that happened, we would be able to fund what we're currently doing and also expand our work. So we're really hoping that you can help us prove a little bit about what Dan is exploring that there are all kinds of new models of how to fund a Jewish organization. And if you're so inclined, just head to www.judaismunbound.com donate, and there are all kinds of ways that you might donate. As I said, we suggest about a dollar for every episode that you listen to. So if you listen every week, maybe about $50. If you listen less often, maybe about $18. And if you really recognize the importance of our work, the importance of finding a new approach to getting Jewish ideas out there that's being accessed hundreds of thousands of times over the course of a year, perhaps you might consider a larger donation or helping us connect with folks who are able to make grants. And we're really grateful to you for doing that. So now let's jump into our conversation with Dan Judson, part two. Dan, welcome back to Judaism Unbound. It's great to have you on again. Thank you guys so much for having me. For me, the climactic discovery of this book, the thing that really got me rolling and excited was this idea of the mushroom synagogue yeah. and not merely the idea of the mushroom synagogue, but the reactions to mushroom synagogues by more traditional synagogues. I'm not going to define the term. I'm going to let you define the term. Okay. Um, but just this fascinating phenomenon starts to arise early 20th century. Is 1901. That? Yep. And it really seems to throw a lot of things <laughs> up in the air and get a lot of strong responses. So I'd love to hear from you, what is a mushroom synagogue? And probably later I'm gonna come back and think about what does this tell us about, about our current time? Because the funny thing is we've probably interviewed a bunch of people who would be classified as running mushroom synagogues of one sort or another today. But tell us about what they looked like in the early 20th century and what they provoked. Starting in 1901, we have newspaper reports of signs going up all over the Lower East Side saying famous cantor, you know, coming to lead high holiday services here. And the here were Yiddish bars, um, Yiddish theaters, uh, Yiddish social halls, like all these places that were not exactly synagogues would, for the high holidays, turn themselves around 
and have a high holiday service. And the quote unquote famous cantor that was going to come was not a, usually not a famous cantor, but was you know, the bartender who in the old country had a good bit of knowledge and could daven. And so he all of a sudden was the famous cousin from the old country that was coming to, 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 to lead. The mushroom synagogues would charge prices below what the established synagogues would charge to come for the high holidays, and they would fill up. So the best estimate we have you had a few hundred thousand people, 300,000 people in the Lower East Side were going to mushroom synagogues, let's say in the 19 teens. And it was driving the Jewish community absolutely crazy. Um, we have a front page story, excuse me, I don't know if it's a front page story. There's a story in the New York Times from 1909 with the organized Jewish community warns the people of New warns the Jews of New York, stay away from mushroom synagogues. They're taking advantage of you. It's indecorous. It's absurd. It's terrible. The organized Jewish community is looking at these places as um, as a kind of charlatans, as you know, as the kind of leading people astray. So they go on though for uh, we know exactly how long they started in 1901 is our first record, and we know that they go exactly for 33 years because I know exactly. They end exactly on June 7th, 19, I think it's the 7th, 1934. And they end because of the Depression in some ways. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, synagogues and the organized Jewish community was upset that, they, that these things were happening. But when the Depression hits, synagogues are no longer just upset. They're really pissed. And they form organizations. There's a Agudat Harabanim an orthodox conglomeration of synagogues whose, I love their slogan was, don't forsake the sanctuary for the social hall. The conservative movement had a lobbying group, had a, had a political group against them, the reform. Like it was the only thing probably that brought reform, conservative, and orthodox synagogues together was how terrible these mushroom synagogues were. It brought people together like nothing else could. They all lobbied the New York State Legislature. And the reason I mention this June date in 1934 is because the New York State Legislature outlawed mushroom synagogues in 1934. To this day, it is illegal, just in case any of your listeners are thinking about doing it, it is illegal. It is a misdemeanor, fine in 1934 by $500. I don't know what it looks like today, but it is illegal for somebody to run a for-profit high holiday service. It's not the story that you expect to find, but it's a great story. Um, I think it bespeaks a culture which says, uh, as a letter to a Jewish newspaper said at the time, look, if I can find a cheaper dry cleaner, why can't I go to a cheaper synagogue? That is, it sees religion as a good, just like any other good, and therefore I, the consumer, um, should be allowed to choose for myself what kind of good I should have. Now, in 1934, synagogues and rabbis had enough political clout to overturn, to, excuse me, not to overturn, to convince the legislature to, to outlaw them. You know, I, I speak to a lot of synagogues today, just to bring us, to bring us today for a second, it's not 1934. You, 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 nobody's going to be able to outlaw Chabad or outlaw these upstart folks who are going to come and 
compete with you. You've got to figure out a way to compete. And I would add, you know, I think we've reached at this particular moment, just to say another word about contemporary finances, we've obviously reached a moment which I would call hyper competition for synagogues. That is, you can, what synagogues used to do can be done online. That is, you want a rabbi to bar mitzvah your child, call a seminary, call online, you know, call some rabbi that you see online who's willing to do it. You could Skype for, you know, for, for bar mitzvah lessons. Rabbi will find a Torah, you know, you'll go to a place and you, you don't need synagogues for life cycle events. You don't need synagogues for this. You don't need synagogues for that. The only thing you still need synagogues for is community. And you see all, I see all around me, you know, synagogues that are merging. We can get into this a little bit more if you want, but synagogues kind of merging and how they're dealing with this sense, this heightened sense of competition. But that's where we're living in now, a place where we're not going to be able to, like we were in 1934, outlaw competition. And before we get to today, I, I think it's uh, there's one there's an, one era that we haven't really discussed yet, which is the post World War II era, and it's one that I'd love to get your perspective on because one way that I have been thinking about it is that there's a way to understand it as having been part of a boom, you know, part of a bubble, and that. One reason why synagogues are struggling now may be because there's competition. It may be because Jews have changed profoundly in some way. And some of that is true. And some of that, when you look at some of this history, you kind of see like maybe they haven't changed that much. So not so clear that that's the reason. But maybe they just there are just too many of them, right? That they just expanded too too much and too widely and that that had a lot to do with various economic realities and demographic movements of the post-World War II era. And, you know, the the question that, that I often struggle with and struggle with synagogues with is to what extent would a merger or some kind of downsizing be a tragedy or simply an acknowledgement that we probably are, are bigger than we ever should have been anyway. So I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what happened after World War II and how we sort of got the synagogues that we knew from the late 20th century. So Dan, just to eschew all academic objectivity, the answer is they should merge. There's too many of them. It's mm -hmm. not a good use of resources. As you, as you say, Dan, the 1950s saw a massive building boom of synagogues, but I should also say a massive building boom of churches. In a word, it was all about suburbanization, and churches were being built left and right, and synagogues just followed suit, spending massive amounts of money to build all of these synagogues. And we can talk, you know, there's all these studies done about um, sort of the role of identity in suburbia in the 1950s, and it's, it's very clear that Jews moving to suburbia saw belonging to a synagogue as a mark of identity. And even if they weren't observant, they belonged then, they moved, they, they joined a reform synagogue or a conservative synagogue, they fit with their, they now had some choice because a lot of towns were building two synagogues, reform and conservative. Some were building three, four, five, you know, more than that, obviously. But the move to suburbia had an awful lot of money. Um, Jews had wealth all of a sudden, were moving to suburbia, built all these edifices. Oh, from our perspective now, we'd say overbuilt all of these edifices and created what is a problem for us today, but at the time was um, enormously successful. I mean, just in terms of looking at synagogues, it was a heyday of synagogue wealth. I had 
um, in the book, I profile a synagogue in um, Kansas City, uh, B'nai Yehuda, a well-known reform synagogue. And the problem that B'nai Yehuda had in uh, the late 1950s was the problem which most synagogues today, if you told them about, they, would, they just couldn't even fathom, which is B'nai Yehuda built a synagogue, and they built it for, I apologize, I'm not looking at the book, but it's, they built it for something like 850 kids. By the time the building was done, even if not a single new family joined the synagogue, there was going to be a thousand kids in their religious school. So what did they do? They literally paid people to form another synagogue. And they weren't the only synagogue. I, they, they have found that in the notes of B'nai Yehuda, they found five or six other synagogues in Boston and Toronto and other places that were paying for other synagogues to be built. Could you imagine today a synagogue paying, that so overcrowded, so overrun, that they literally are paying people to go elsewhere. It's like totally, totally unimaginable in an age where you have these large buildings that sit for the most part entirely unused. Yeah, we were just at the National Museum of American Jewish History recently, and there's an, there's a, an exhibit there that's kind of this little room you can go in, and there's these huge video screens, and you can kind of tour these various synagogues. And my jaw was just on the floor, like, to see some of these synagogues that are so enormous and so, you know, designed by some of the most famous architects of the day, and you just sort of wonder from the perspective from the perspective of today, like, how did they possibly think that this could continue? You know, and some of them are in these like random towns that you've never really heard of. And to think that they imagined that there would always be a big enough Jewish population in these places that that they could sustain these buildings that when I was sitting there looking at this, I was actually thinking to myself, like, this has to be much more fancy and ornate than the temple first or second could possibly have been. <laughs> Look, Dan, it's the power. I mean, I think you know the answer, right? right? It's the power of where we sit today. And on the one hand, it's beautiful that you can imagine, you know, you're in, you're in where? Richmond, Virginia, and you stumble across a massive synagogue. Or I was uh, in Wyoming one year, many, many years ago. I served as the high holiday rabbi in Laramie, Wyoming. And we went to this, I went from Laramie to, hey, now what's, this, what's the capital of Wyoming? Cheyenne. Cheyenne. And the synagogue in Cheyenne, Wyoming could fit like 700 Jews for the high holidays. Why? Because when the railroad was built across the country, Jews were actually settling in Cheyenne, Wyoming. They had great, I mean, imagine the chutzpah and the hope. I love it. They had such faith that Jews would want to live there. On the other hand, it's like now it seems totally crazy that synagogue for 700 people in Cheyenne, Wyoming, when they're using, you know, when they need it, when they need it, when they struggle to make a minion, like some of it just seems absurd, but it is, it is the nature of hope and faith. And we're so, so fixed on, on, on sort of the culture that we live in now and the presumption of now that it's just going to continue on the way it's going to continue on. So, so now, now I want to fast forward a little to, to our current moment and this is always the tricky question to ask authors who have written books on history, uh, because um, there's, his, his, I mean, one of the first things I learned when I was in a history classroom was, you know, if we don't learn from the lessons of the past, we're doomed to repeat them. So there is this presumption that we learn history so that we can shape the decisions that we make today. But also, like, 
it's it's hard to it's hard to take the incredible the incredible evolution that you looked at and say, well, okay, here we go. Snap our fingers. Now we know this is what we've learned from history and the way that we should operate in 2018 and 2019. And so at the risk of asking like a, a really huge question, if you look at this scope and these evolutions of how synagogues have financed themselves and their relationships to their communities and all the themes you're talking about, what are one or two key takeaways you have that, that you think are relevant, not merely as interesting pieces about our past, but that can apply to how we make decisions in Jewish community today? One of the ways that I think synagogues could learn from historical experience is the whole question of dues and what synagogues uh, are asking of people. Um, so just to go back to the history for a second, at the, as I mentioned, at the end of World War I, Synagogues at that point were running themselves based on seat ownership, but there became this cultural problem where it was anti-democratic, they needed to raise more money. The financial mechanism became out of step with the cultural zeitgeist. That is, cultural zeitgeist was saying, democracy, democracy, democracy. And then you walked into a synagogue and the financial mechanism was anti-democratic. I think the exact same thing happened today is happening, happened, kicked off by the recession of 2000, it's called 2007, but that recession kicked off a problem in synagogue finance, one that anybody who goes to a synagogue is probably, and listening to the show, is probably shaking their head, which is that as a result of, initially as a result of the recession, but I think it goes beyond that, the cultural factors and the economic factors, synagogues began not being able to raise many of them, not all of them, but many of them began seeing a loss of membership and a loss of revenue. And I think what happened is where we are culturally now didn't fit with the financial model. The financial model was this idea that you're going to pay dues. What's the, what is the model? As I already mentioned, dues is a kind of obligation, right? It's, it's based on this idea that you're obligated to join the Jewish community, and so you're obligated to pay this amount of money to join the synagogue. It kind of is, as Jonathan Sarno would say, it's a kind of tax that Jews pay for living in a society where the government cannot, um, cannot establish churches. The framework for dues are obligation and taxes and, and, and this, th- th- these ideas. But that, that does not fit with the world we're living in right now. And I think that's a big problem. Um, That is, people want to feel that they are giving to their synagogue of their own free will, of their own hearts. They don't want to feel that if they've given, let's call it $3,000 in dues or $2,500 in dues, they don't want to feel that the synagogue says to them, well, you were supposed to do that anyway. I mean, imagine if NPR got a check for $2,500 from ULEX and, you know, NPR wrote, Lex, wrote you a note saying, this was what we expected from you anyway. Like, that's basically what dues are. And that's like crazy in this time, in this day and age. Synagogue should write back saying, we are incredibly grateful. This is amazing. Thank you so much. This is a fantastic gift. On and on. If NPR got a gift for $1,000 from you, Dan, even though you, Lex, gave $2,500, they wouldn't write back Dan saying, well, you know, Lex gave $2,500, so Dan, you kind of suck by only giving $1,000. <laughs> they would say, oh my God, Dan, fantastic, thank you so much. You're, you know, Lex, Lex got a special little perk that you're in, but here are all the perks you're going to get, Dan. It's amazing that you've done this on and on about how amazing you are, Dan, for giving $1,000. 
when people go to synagogues and the dues are 2,500 and they can only afford 1,500 and they have to feel terrible about giving the 1,500, that's $1,500. You know, they have to feel terrible about that. Like something is totally off in synagogues. And so one of the things that I encourage synagogues to do is just get rid of dues. To go back to Stephen Wise, that model, that free synagogue model, that synagogues should be free synagogues. It's not about saying that we don't need money. Synagogues need money. Synagogues, rabbis should get paid. But dues is the wrong cultural template for where we're living in now. I've had the really good fortune of um, UJ Synergy New York, which is the New York City's federation, has an arm called Synergy, which just focuses on synagogue welfare. They, they've produced a number of reports. Just SYN like synagogues. Synergy. SYN like, yes, Synergy. Synergy. Cool. Very clever, right? So I've done two studies for them just on those synagogues that have given up their dues. Because when I first was talking about this, synagogues would say, that's all fine and lovely. That kind of, you know, I get that culturally. I get that intuitively. I don't like being on a committee that says to somebody who's looking for what's called an abatement, I don't like to be the person to ask somebody, I don't want to look at anybody's tax records. I don't want, to, I don't want somebody to come begging for me. But we need to do it because if we don't do that, there's no way we can support a synagogue. So Synergy commissioned me and a, a, few, um, a few co-authors to do two studies, one that came out last year in 2017 and one that came out in 2015 to look at every synagogue in America that had gotten rid of dues and just to get their financial numbers. And what we found when we, when we interviewed every synagogue was that lo and behold, the vast majority of synagogues were doing better when they got rid of dues than they were before. More members, slightly more money. It seems counterintuitive, Jews don't believe it, but I can point to all sorts of synagogues where that's been the case. Your first conversation around membership is, well, it is $2,500. Your first conversation around membership is, do you believe in what we're doing here? Does this make sense to you? Is this the kind of place that you could feel comfortable? We, you know, all the kind of relational Judaism stuff that Ron Wolfson talks about in relational Judaism, that's, the, that's really what happens in, in talking to people about membership. And you don't even have to deal with money. You'll say, you know, here's how much, this, here's how much it costs to run the synagogue as you are transparent with everybody. Um, but you'll do, this synagogue runs on a do-what-you-can model. So you've got more, you, you have more people coming, and because you have more people coming, even if everybody's paying a little less, it ultimately means more money. So I've got uh, lots of data which shows that uh, presently, those synagogues, the average membership growth rate, looking at all the synagogues that have moved to this model across the country, is over 3%. And the average revenue rate, revenue growth for all these congregations is around 2%. So I want to pursue this a little bit because I've been a little bit of a skeptic about this approach. But actually, as I hear you describe it, it's not that I'm skeptical of the approach compared to membership. I'm skeptical of it as an approach that's going to be a panacea or not a panacea, but even a good fix to what ails synagogues today. Um, And the reason is that Fundamentally, the economics of a synagogue on the revenue side are the multiplication of the number of members times the average gift or the average dues. And if we're going to have an expansion of membership due to getting rid of dues, it has to be enough of an expansion to deal with the loss of, of average dues. And, and here's where I like bring in my own 
experience of this. And I say, look, back to your description of the NPR model earlier. It's like, I wish that I gave $2,500 a year to NPR. I actually use NPR substantially more than I use my synagogue. And that's even more true of, of other organizations that I don't give anywhere near the amount that I have been giving the synagogue up till now because that's what the dues were. So I understand that when you go to the non-dues model in the short term, most of the current membership is sort of conditioned to understand the cost of synagogue membership at a certain amount, and therefore they'll more or less probably con continue that amount, maybe a little less, but not a tremendous amount less when you take away the dues. But in terms of looking to the future and looking at young people coming up the pike, it's really hard for me to imagine that young people are voluntarily going to get themselves up to an annual gift to the synagogue in the multi-thousands of dollars, unless something changes on the other side. And that's where maybe it's also valuable to bring in the question of, you know, the expense side, or what is it that synagogues really do? Because I think that the way that I've been thinking about it is that you could sort of imagine that up till now, synagogues have been offering the core product, so to speak, the synagogue services that a small number of people really, really want. But vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the membership, and this is why I was getting earlier at like, what were these people getting at when they were willing to pay the fines or the Torah honors? You know, it feels like we could fairly say that the synagogue was offering a kind of um, psychological product, maybe is the way to say it, sort of like a gym where you say, I wanted, I want, I feel, I feel like I should be part of this. I should do the thing, but I don't really want to do the thing, but I pay the, the fees because I kind of had the sense that I should, or maybe some kind of insurance product because I don't really want this most of the time, but there are going to be a few times when I do want it and I'm willing to pay the premiums in order to get that. And it sort of feels to me that for young people, and I don't really see this changing, those senses of obligation or insurance are not the same as, as perhaps they have been in the past. And it doesn't seem likely to me that they're going to pay multiple thousands of dollars for it. So it feels to me like the only answer really is either for synagogues to, to merge so that they can consolidate the number of people who really still do want to pay that and do really value either the core product or those ancillary products, and or to develop a new model where the synagogues are really providing a good that's really what people want. And maybe here we're looking back to the 20s and the synagogue center model, at least conceptually, where those synagogues, it seems to me, were also saying, hey, we've got to really diversify what we're offering because people don't want just the, the shul anymore. So I'm curious if you could kind of take on all that and, and kind of tell me if this analysis right or wrong and, and then, you know, looking to the future. First of all, Unrelated to this, we have to tell your local NPR you're not giving them enough money because if you're using them that much, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm just saying, Dan, you might have to increase. Sure, fair rate. enough. Um, there are cases certainly where synagogues should merge. We talked all. We just talked a bit about how synagogues exploded in the suburban era. You have something which they couldn't have imagined, which is the reurbanization of the Jewish community. Simply the people are not there because a lot of them are moving back into the cities. It's not to say there won't be a re-suburbanization at some point in the future, but right now there's a re-urbanization. And that re-urbanization is causing a lot of havoc among synagogues. If I think about when I came to the Boston area, I was the rabbi of a synagogue in what's called the South Shore of Boston, which as it sounds like are just a bunch of towns in the South of Boston near the coast. There were five conservative synagogues in the towns in my area and two reformed synagogues, towns with names like Canton and Randolph, for anybody who lives in the Boston area, and these played Milton. 
those five conservative Simbrakta and those five conservative synagogues are down now to one conservative synagogue and one independent synagogue. And those two reform synagogues are now one reform synagogue and one independent synagogue. So um, those seven synagogues are now uh, four synagogues, two, two are independent. Anyway, you get the idea that people are merging, people, three of those synagogues merged together. A few of them just went out of business. But I would say uh, this to a lot of your analysis. Synagogues need to be in their dealings around their finances, around their website, around all sorts of non-religious matters, need to be like entirely up-to-date, entirely hip, entirely commensurate with the culture. When it comes to the actual, I think you use the word product, Dan, I don't think at all it's a synagogue center. When it comes to the product, they should be entirely countercultural. As the dean of a rabbinical school, I'm not interested in producing rabbis whose primary kind of vision is just, I'm going to bring Jews together. Well, our tradition has the most sublime and beautiful countercultural answers for so much of what ills us. The product, as it were, and you'll forget, I don't even like using the word, despite my, despite, yeah. despite my fascination with money and religion, I don't like using the word product, but let's use it for the moment. The product is not wrong. It's not the product. We don't need scenarios where people, they don't need like fancy. The product has just got to be, um, you need just authentic teachers of deep Torah. Now, having said that though, everything around that product has got to be commensurate with the culture. So the financial system can't be the financial system from 50 years ago. That's not going to work. So I, I, I really, um, I'm not a skeptic about this, about this dues model, um, or, or the, the non-dues model, the pay what you can model. Um, but more than that, I'm actually, I want to say that to start. I'm not a skeptic, um, A, because I experienced it in a congregation in Jackson, Mississippi when I was living there um, and working down there. Um, I was there. I I came down. I think six months or so after they made the switch and saw it. And this was in Mississippi, where people are not at all. We're, we're members of this congregation. We're not likely to support things that feel socialist or like like. Um, and and the fact that it could no that I mean that's what we're talking about here. I want to name that. I mean, as somebody with some socialist inclinations, I want to name that. You know what we're talking about here is a little bit of that. Um, and if we think, uh, but but uh, but so I, I I saw it work there. But I also am, I want to name that I'm actually very uncomfortable with the with the premise behind the the shift being that it will gain members or that it will build revenue. For me, this is a this is purely justice. This is purely I do not believe I I agree with what many Christians framed their church work. It like to me, everybody who wants access to that that Jewish space deserves access to that Jewish space. To me, that's just a bottom line. If a congregation can't can't survive where they're offering everybody that chance to have access, regardless of how much money they have, then that congregation, sadly to me, can't can't be like that's it's just to me like a minimum wage that like to me if an organ if a business if whatever can't afford to pay people a minimum wage like that's a bummer like that that business can't continue um and so i look at congregations through that same lens and for me judaism is not something i really 
I recoiled hugely at the seats thing, at the at the buying seats and getting closer. Like it's funny because today, if we did it, the seats in the back would be the most expensive. Yeah, right. uh, there's like don't some them, terrible disease on them that causes people not to sit in the first three rows. But um, I, I wanted to name that because I'm just I really think that w- we need to say that. All of these questions about finances, et cetera, there, there are politics Im- immersed in them. And, and what I loved about your book is that it, it looked at how people in various ways look at finances either, either as an extension of, of values uh, from, from texts, from Torah, from Bible, um, in Christian communities, from gospel, et cetera. Um, or in many cases, they, they see it as separate and distinct from that. And I really, whatever conclusions we have, and I'm not saying that any of the three of us disagree with this. I think all three of us are saying from different kinds of value spaces that we should stand behind certain kinds of due structures. But I hope everybody is on board with whatever due structures or non-due structures synagogues have. The reason to have them, for me, primarily should be a reason that it, it's in line with whatever values we think that that community stands for. Um, and on that front, I just wanted to open up a question because I'm supposed to ask questions. Um, but like, we didn't bring up another big money issue, which interweaves with this, which is salaries and and rabbis and and even cantors. And, and so as we think about these questions of how we spend money, I'd love to hear from you historically or now what your take is on on how we pay Jewish clergy. First of all, Lex, I, I love that congregation in Jackson. Uh, I've spoken to them many times, and it's a fantastic congregation. I don't think it's the model is socialist. In some ways, Lex, I think the dues model probably is a little more socialist than even this model, with the following. With, with, with what I know is the downside to this model where everybody's going to pay what they can. In such a system, you know, I referenced Stephen Wise as the first person to kind of put this in play at their synagogue. Stephen Wise was friends with, he hobnobbed with the president. He was of America. He was friends with the kind of wealthiest milieu of his absolute force of personality and charisma. He was the, you know, let's say one of the few most important rabbis in America for many, many years. When he needed to make a budget, he just called one of his Wall Street financier friends who was a member of the synagogue and said, can you write a check for everybody? And that person said, sure. And so they made up for any shortfall from the, you know, the Dan Judsons and the Dan Liebensons in the world who weren't paying their fair share, as it were. Right? The model implicitly says, you know, every dollar that comes into the congregation is going to be a dollar that you've, is a development dollar, is a, is a donation. And whatever people can do is wonderful. It will involve and entail some people giving significantly more than others if the congregation, even at the most minimal, just to pay even a poorly paid rabbi and renting a building, that's going to involve some people paying more than others. You are inevitably going to have a system where some people are going to be asked and that is, might entail them receiving something or you know, some, some honorific in some way. I'm not opposed to that. And in some cases, this was the ridiculous part. They would go after Mrs. Goldberg, who paid fifteen hundred instead of two thousand, instead of Lex, who could actually afford five thousand but only paid twenty five hundred, and they would harangue and harangue and harangue Mrs. Goldberg. I'm sorry for picking on Mrs. Goldberg, but they would harangue her for not paying that full dues when she was only down five hundred. When there were other people 
who could have paid three times as much without, you know, without worrying about it. The reason is because it, was, it has this ethos of being broad-based and everybody should be in this together. I, say, you know, I think synagogues should rid themselves of that notion, actually. To get to the, the historical piece about rabbinic funding, rabbinic funding comes about from the very earliest periods in American Jewish history. Um, that is, from the get-go, spiritual lead, Jewish spiritual leaders were paid well, better than, their, better than the majority of their Christian counterparts, or at least on par in the 19th century with their Christian counterparts, and then through the 20th century, better than their Christian counterparts. So, you know, one study I quote in the book, in 1973, the reform movement did a study. Uh, the numbers, I think, are not exactly right, but close enough. 95% of reform rabbis in 1973 were making more money than all but 5% of Christian clergy. In the 1870s, with the founding of the Hebrew Union Colleges, um, uh, um, with the founding of Hebrew Union, Hebrew Union College, uh, excuse me, my alma mater, you suddenly had a limit um, or you had a training ground where American rabbis could be trained. And then there was the establishment of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Then there was the establishment of Yeshiva University. In the late 1800s, you had an influx of all of these immigrants, obviously, into America. That was a moment where the whole system could have gone awry. That is, you had all these immigrants, many of whom were trained in some way to be able to lead davening, to be able to answer halakha questions, to be, to be rabbis. And many of them worked for literally peanuts um, in the New York City and other places that they, they settled in. You could have imagined a scenario where they would have brought down the salary scale for rabbis and it would have just continued to pace in the 20th century. But in fact, what happens is with the creation of those rabbinic seminaries, you had the, also the creation of rabbinic organizations, which functioned basically as unions or cartels, whatever word we're going to use, to make sure that those prices for salaries for rabbis would continue to stay high. The only way that works is if congregations agree. If congregations, of course, say, yes, we are only going to take rabbis with ordination and membership in these rabbinic unions. And it turns out, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, the CCAR, the, the Rabbinic Assembly, the Orthodox Union, um, the precursors to those institutions, do a good enough job of convincing congregations and create a template that says, to be a real congregation, you need a rabbi with, ordination, with membership in one of those institutions. That creates uh, the kind of moving forward, the um, uh, uh, sense of that rabbis are going to continue to be paid well. Layered on top of that is the notion in Judaism that um, rabbis should be paid. They're not, they're not priests, right? You have that Catholic, you're not ministers, they're not priests. It's fine to be paid as a rabbi. Um, and layered on top of that is the great success of the Jewish community, certainly by the time you get into the suburban period, and this notion that rabbis should be paid at least as much so that they sh it shouldn't be a shanda if you're living in a wealthy community, how much the rabbi is being paid compared to how much everybody is making. What you see right now, I think, is a little bit of, a little bit of shaking of that system, less rabbinic jobs in synagogues. And you have people who have the chutzpah to open up rabbinical seminaries, which are not affiliated with one of the movements. These are very dangerous people. 
the people who open up such, such no, that, that, right, for your listeners, you, you're laughing, that's good. For your listeners, I run such a seminary that opened up outside the movements. We are, we are not bringing down, I'm happy to report, we are not bringing down rabbinic salaries. Our folks are making exactly what the movements uh, are making, but we also have a lot of folks who are not working in congregations. We've got a lot of folks who are ending up working in other places. My sense of what's going to happen is that you're going to see, not like who knows what's going to happen in 50 years, but in 20 years, what you're going to see is that um, a lot of rabbis are going to continue to be paid good upper class, middle, upper middle class salaries and be able to live in the places where the Jews are living. And then you're going to see a swath of rabbis who are hustling, as it were, for all those congregations that are not existing um, anymore in sort of suburbia that are able to pay salaries or not, you know, those jobs are going to go away and they're going to be hustling. They're going to either do other things. Thank God there's been lots more jobs in Hillel campuses and organizations. So, you know, they're going to be hustling. They're going to be working for, I'm, I'm going to, I think we're going to see a divide between rabbis really doing well, working at successful congregations and rabbis working at Hillel's, federations, JCCs, or just less successful congregations. And there'll be a kind of big financial divide between those two. Um, without that kind of Jewish middle class mirroring what the rest of society looks like. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. We could keep rolling. I mean, I know we could we could record many, many more episodes on this, and hopefully um, one day we will. But thank you, Dan Judson, for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you guys so much. And thanks, of course, to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this two-parter. And uh, we hope that you'll tune in to our future episodes. Uh, we want to close out this episode as we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at, at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation you're able to send our way. And you can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate with either a monthly recurring gift or a one-time donation. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.